The CECC added 76,517 local COVID cases and 142 COVID-related deaths on Friday. The outbreak is improving in the north but worsening in central and southern Taiwan. Experts say that the death toll in central and southern Taiwan will begin to peak after the middle of June. The COVID wave has plateaued, according to the CECC. It reported 76,517 new local cases on Friday, along with 409 moderate to severe cases and 142 COVID deaths. Of the 142 deaths announced today, 134 of them, or about 94%, had another serious disease like cancer or a chronic illness. 104 of them, or about 74%, were not boosted. The youngest casualty was in their 20s and suffered from an immune disorder. Of the 142 deaths, 34 were cases that died after hospitalization. 108 of them were already dead when reported, reflecting the extremely rapid progression of the disease. According to the CECC, the fatality rate of severe cases has reached 0.08% and is on track to reach 0.1% in a week. The worst of the epidemic is shifting from north to south. Based on the projections, the epidemic is now peaking in central and southern Taiwan, and it's about to enter the so-called plateau period that will go on for one or two weeks. Nationally, the epidemic will start to cool off after the middle of June, when the national numbers start going down after mid-June, the death toll in central and southern Taiwan will begin to peak. If the mortality rate among triple vaccinated people stays high like this, what we should do is discuss how we should adjust our vaccine regimen. Which brands should we be using as the crux of our regimen? A large share of Friday's cases were in New Taipei, Taichung and Kaohsiung, where there were more than 10,000 cases each. Already the case counts in central and southern Taiwan have exceeded those in greater Taipei. After mid-June, deaths will start to peak in central and southern Taiwan. Experts say that vaccination and the availability of treatment will be key to minimizing the fatality rate in the region. Efforts to get kids vaccinated continued apace on Friday, the first day of the Dragon Boat Festival holiday. In Taipei, big crowds gathered at local schools as parents brought their children in for the Pfizer vaccine. Throughout the three-day-long weekend, seven large-scale vaccination clinics will offer child vaccination in all six special municipalities. On the first day of the holiday, Shuzi Elementary School hosted a vaccine clinic for children. A crowd formed at the school early in the morning. I came to wait here at 7 a.m. The reason we're getting this done early is that this way, we have a two-day recovery period. If we waited till Saturday or Sunday, we'd have to deal with the side effects on a weekday. Originally, the doctors at our partner clinic were scheduled to be on leave. However, to help our school, they came in today for the vaccination clinic. Friday was the final day of on-campus Pfizer vaccinations in Taipei. Children who miss out can still get their shot at Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, where a large-scale clinic launched on Wednesday. Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall will vaccinate children throughout the long weekend. On Friday, families began trickling in after 9 in the morning. Online bookings started out slow earlier this week, but by Friday, more than 1,000 children were registered to get their shot. By the end of the day, the clinic expects to vaccinate some 1,500 children, including walk-ins. 
样才不会让细菌跑的。都会担心啊，但是觉得还是要让我们正常生活的话，还是要打针比较好。On a visit to Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, Taipei Deputy Mayor Tsai Bing-kun criticized the central government for opening the clinic too early while school vaccinations were still underway. He said the new clinic was a waste of manpower and that the central government did not coordinate its plans with local officials. The first two days were superfluous, frankly speaking, because we had already set up school vaccinations, and here they were, opening up another vaccination clinic that led to the waste of medical resources. But the new clinic does provide much-needed support over the three-day-long weekend. When it came to the timing of the launch, the central government could have given us a phone call. That probably would have solved the problem. The deputy mayor said that as of Thursday, 52% of the city's eligible children have been vaccinated. He said schools will reopen for physical classes next Monday, as scheduled. 36 years after the original Top Gun, Tom Cruise is back on the big screen with the sequel Top Gun Maverick. And you know what else is back? It's Taiwan's national flag, which appeared on the lead character's jacket in the original film. Now, the flag was absent in the 2019 trailer for the sequel, but it was brought back in the final version of the film that's now showing in Taiwan's theaters. Many say that Beijing will ban the release of the film in China. Let's hear from a Hollywood journalist. Referred to as the three T's, the things you cannot talk about. Taiwan, Tibet, and Tiananmen Square. And any movie that touches any of those third rail topics is likely not going to be shown in Chinese theaters. The flags are just something to do with the past. There's nothing wrong with having them there. I think it's senseless to make a big deal about them. The new Top Gun earned more than 120 million NT in its first 10 days at the box office. And merchandise for the film is also selling well. Limited edition replicas of the jacket behind the controversy, which were priced at 40,000 NT each, sold out in seconds. On November 17, 1989, students gathered in Prague to protest against the communist regime. The nonviolent protest known as the Velvet Revolution eventually led to the fall of Czechoslovakia's one-party government. This year marks the 33rd year since the protest. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang spoke to a protester of the Velvet Revolution for an inside look at this pivotal moment. We've come from, from the river and we were stopped just over there by the police. This is Richard, a protester of the 1989 Velvet Revolution. He takes us down memory lane, showing us the exact spot where the protest took place 33 years ago. We were stopped here by the police, just uh, over there at that crossroad. Uh, we were stopped as students by the police. Uh, for a couple of hours, we are just blocked. Some of the students try to escape using the side roads. Some of the students uh, escape uh, by ringing the bells to the buildings uh, because they were afraid. Richard was only 19 years old and a freshman in college. He recalls the fear that he felt. As I remember, about two hours, the police squad received the order to uh, dismiss the protest by the force. So with the shields, uh, long white rods and helmets, they start to beat the front of the students. Some of them were injured, uh, about tens, up to hundred of them was uh, made captive and imprisoned for a while. 
The Velvet Revolution began on November 17, 1989, 10 days after the demonstration. Anti-communist activists led a two-hour general strike. By November 20, 1989, a half million Czechs and Slovaks had gathered on Prague streets and they took over Winkeslis Square. By the end of the year, activists had forced out the communist regime and launched a democratic regime in Czechoslovakia. Václav Havel became the last president of Czechoslovakia and the first president of the Czech Republic. The protest started, in fact, uh, a little bit earlier prior to this, uh, when the anniversary of the Soviet invasion to our country started in August 1988. Then another anniversary in January 1989, uh, when was the anniversary of the death of the two students who burned themselves in a protest of uh, that Soviet invasion. Then. People were so uh, upset, so any other anniversary was followed by the protests, uh, dismissed by the force, by the police. And let's say, uh, as I translate from Czech, this was something like a last drop to, of the liquid to spread all over the country. And the people were so upset everywhere, so they start the protest. Richard says that for the Czech Republic, democracy was hard fought. On the street where the protest took place, there's a plaque that consists of nine bronze hands showing a V for victory and the date November 17, 1989. This plaque honors the protest that led to the fall of Czechoslovakia's communist government 33 years ago. This is Stephanie Yang and Huang Ritsuen reporting in the Czech Republic. June is here and it's time for Taiwan's famous watermelon harvest. But do you know just how much hard work it takes to get a watermelon farm filled to table? Today we meet a couple of farmers with very specialized skills. The melon wall builder and the melon diviner are two weird and wonderful jobs you might not have heard from, about from your career counselor. The watermelon season is here once again. One bite of the delicious fruit will cool you down on a scorching summer's day. But did you know how many hoops a melon must jump through to get to market? With a seal and ink pad in hand, Mr. He moves down the line of melons, giving each one a sharp tap and listening for the result. He's a professional melon diviner. His mission? to use these ancient methods to check the melons are all good and ready to sell. See this one? It's not ripe yet. It's still hard. You can leave it in the ground longer. It's not red inside yet. It will still have white inside. Listen to that. Its veins aren't open yet. Mr. He gives each melon a glance over and a tap and instantly knows how it's doing. If it's ripe, he stamps his seal on it, indicating it's ready to harvest. It might look simple, but it's exhausting work out here in the summer sun. <laughs> but the elements are just the first hurdle. What's harder is getting the years of experience required to become a master. We couldn't persuade Mr. He to reveal how much he makes. Once the melons are ripe, they're handed on to the next expert. Mr. Lin is a melon wall builder of the first degree. You might not realize how much strength and skill is required to pile the melons up neat and sturdy like this. Each melon can weigh 15 to 20 kilograms. They are thrown up on the truck effortlessly, caught and quickly placed in a perfect spot on the wall according to their size, shape and weight. 
You have to build the wall well to prevent them from getting bumped and bruised. If you drive the truck poorly and damage the melons, when you get to the wholesaler, everyone will know straight away. Building the melon wall is a real art. Mr. Lin has been doing it for more than a decade and makes no bones about how tough it is. It's hard. One time in June or July, I worked from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., about three hours, and then I crawled under the truck to hide from the sun. I looked out and it was all white. Everything looked speckled in the sunshine. It was a close brush with death. A watermelon is such a summer treat. We can easily finish one in just a few minutes, but the skill it takes to grow them is incredible. Next time you take a bite, think of all the many people who came together to produce this delicious harvest. The U.S. State Department has updated its fact sheet on Taiwan again, this time to restore a statement that it does not support Taiwan independence. In an update published on May 28th, the U.S. reinstated the phrase, we do not support Taiwan independence. The phrase was removed just three weeks earlier, prompting a strong protest from China. Weighing in on the latest change, Taiwan lawmakers said that the U.S. was seeking to appease Beijing as part of the delicate statecraft needed to navigate the cross-crate relationship. Earlier this week, the U.S. Trade Representative Office unveiled the U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade. The announcement has predictably angered Beijing. Stop all official U.S.-Taiwan exchanges. The DPP authorities should abandon their plans of relying on the United States to seek independence as soon as possible. The higher they jump, the farther they will fall. Uh, I can't uh, speak to the PRC's uh, reaction. What I can say um, is that everything we do in the context of our unofficial relationship uh, with Taiwan is done pursuant to uh, our long-standing one-China policy. Which, uh, in the days and weeks ahead, we will and we do intend to move quickly uh, to develop a roadmap for possible negotiations, followed by in-person meetings in Washington, uh, D.C. In related news, the State Department has once again updated its fact sheet on Taiwan. On May 5th, it revised the fact sheet to delete the phrase, Taiwan is part of China. It removed a statement that the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence, while adding a line about Taiwan being a leading democracy and important U.S. partner. However, in its latest revision dated May 28th, the State Department once again said that it did not support Taiwan independence. It did add a new sentence, stating that the U.S. would maintain the capacity to resist any use of force that threatened Taiwan's security or its social or economic system. In the fact sheet dated May 5th, the most important thing was that they removed the line, Taiwan is part of China. It was an assertion that, if China invades Taiwan, it will not be a civil war, it will be an international incident. This latest update was meant just to appease China's irrational reactions. Is the U.S. being coy over the issue of Taiwan independence? Its actions may have given China an excuse to say, you secretly support Taiwan independence. That may have heightened the threat to Taiwan. It may have escalated tensions between Beijing and Washington. Ruling and opposition lawmakers weighed in. With Washington issuing shifting statements, it is clear that speaking officially about the Taiwan-U.S. relationship remains a minefield. Photos of the president holding a rocket launcher are taking the internet by storm. During a military inspection tour on Thursday, President Tsai Ing-wen posed for photos while toting a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher. The photos have gone viral on social media where they are circulating as a series of memes. 
One meme shows Tsai pointing the rocket launcher at people who have not taken the Taiwan-produced Medigen COVID vaccine. Another shows her directing the barrel at people who confuse Taiwan with Thailand. Some memes have been translated into English and are tickling internet users around the world. Amid an ongoing surge of COVID-19, traveler volumes are down this Dragon Boat Festival long weekend. On Friday, many train platforms were devoid of their usual crowds. Coach bus sales have plummeted as well, with less than 20 percent of seats booked in advance, compared to 40 to 50 percent last year. As of this morning, freeway traffic was down 23 percent compared to pre-pandemic levels. With bags big and small, travelers board a train on day one of the Dragon Boat Festival long weekend. A small line gathers at the platform of this eastbound train. But over on the railway's western line, ridership is down by half, leaving many vacant seats. There's less recreational travel. It seems that more of these folks are just going to see family. We went to buy tickets only yesterday, and there were still seats available for today. I personally didn't even consider traveling for fun. And even though I'm going home, I'm only staying a short while. Actually, I hesitated quite a bit when deciding whether to go home this year. Due to the pandemic, many locals waited till the last minute to book their trips. As of Thursday evening, the railway had sold 160,000 tickets for the long weekend, about 30% of the available seats. That's more than the year before when the Level 3 COVID alert depressed sales to just 94,000 seats. But it's much fewer than in 2020 when more than 618,000 tickets were sold. As for the high-speed rail, it sold just 241,000 tickets for the long weekend. Coach bus companies fared even worse. In the past, 40 to 50 percent of all holiday coach bus capacity would be sold in advance. But this year, only 30,679 seats were sold by June 1st, accounting for 17.9 percent of total seats. That's less than 20 percent. According to official data, just 21.9 percent of bus seats on western routes were sold in advance this year. Only 5.5 percent of seats on eastern routes were sold. Not only that, freeway traffic has dropped off, too. As of 9 a.m. on Friday, motor vehicle volume was down 23 percent compared to pre-pandemic levels. But even with fewer cars out and about, drivers are cautioned to be alert to changing road conditions. On the first day of the long weekend, crowds piled into Pingdong's National Museum of Marine Biology and Aquarium. The penguins are a big hit, delighting the guests with their antiques during feeding time. Recently, the penguins were given their annual physical checkup, which identifies the birds most suited for this year's breeding season. Let's hear from a museum administrator. Aside from the annual checkups that biologists from the National Pingdong University of Science and Technology do for us, our staff also regularly observe the penguins when they feed them. We observe their appearance and weight, among other factors, to understand how their daily development is coming along. The penguins get a physical checkup every May. They're weighed on a scale and their food intake, appearance and behavior are carefully assessed. They also get a range of blood work done. Just like with human checkups, the penguins are restricted from food for 8 to 12 hours before their physical exam. Medical workers are not the only people at high risk from COVID. Recently, insurance companies are noting high rates of infection among their employees. 
It seems that staff in the office are most at risk. Experts say insurance forms signed by patients with COVID could be carrying the virus through the post into the office. But doctors say the risk of catching COVID from a form letter remains low. For lots of COVID patients, time at home is spent filling out insurance forms. Insurance companies are dealing with enormous numbers of claims, but they're also wondering why so many more people who work in the office have caught COVID compared to those who work from home. I have four assistants who work in the office. Three have had COVID, whereas we have about 100 associates, and I think fewer than 20 have caught COVID. So that's a pretty stark difference. Experts say that those who work in an office will have to come into contact with lots of visitors, increasing risk. Others suspect there might be traces of the virus on documents that arrive at the office, insurance claims and letters. If there's a viral load of, say, 10 CT value and you leave the object at room temperature for a day, the viral load will decrease by a third. After three days, it will be pretty much nil. I think it is possible that paper could be carrying traces of the virus over a few days. A study at Chang'an University found that traces of the Omicron variant gradually disappear, but they're still detected for about three days. A document that was touched or signed by a COVID patient might still have virus particles on it three days later, especially if the patient has a high viral load. Disinfectant alcohol might be absorbed by the paper, but we still don't know how many virus particles might be on the surface. For example, those working in insurance, there is a higher risk of the virus being on documents signed by patients. So you could wear a mask and gloves to handle those documents, or you could put them in a 56 degrees Celsius oven for 30 minutes to pasteurize them. Wearing a mask and gloves would be a minimum precaution. You could also take care not to touch your face until you have washed your hands. But the risk from documents is probably still quite small and not worth breaking a sweat over.